starting in verse 5. In a few weeks, God willing, I'll be going to Israel to teach at a Bible institute in Jerusalem. And the nature of the trip is a little different than usual, as I'll be seeking to connect with the living stones, not just looking at the dead ones, but uh, the foundation of Jesus Christ and those people that comprise the church, Christians, kids at the, the college. and uh, So pray for me. It'll be two weeks over there, about 30 hours of class time. So I appreciate your prayers. When you tour areas like Bet Shan and other places in Israel, you'll find a lot of pottery strewn about. I brought a few samples of it here if you're interested to check it out. But just little things I picked up here and there. When you, when you look at pottery, you're in these ancient sites, and you don't know if it's relatively recent, maybe hundreds of years old or perhaps thousands of years old. And as you look at it, you can see where the fingers have touched it. And I just, when I look at that, you see evidence that someone made this, and they made it for a purpose. And you think about what sort of person made this pot, or was it a pot? I don't know what it was. What was this vessel designed for? Because when, you set, when a potter sets a piece of uh, chunk of clay, they have an idea of what they're doing and why they're doing it. And if we can have such thoughts in looking at clay and fragments... Think about human beings that God has made in his own image, that he's fashioned. His fingerprints are all over us, and what, might, what purpose does he have for us? Of course, we can, we can know that it's to hallow his name, to glorify him, to know him, and to make him known. And we can rejoice that um, God has imagined us, he has created us, and he's done it with a purpose in mind, and to rejoice in the Savior. So it's much more than um, thinking about only what he has made, but really taking the time to glorify the one who's made, the one who has created all things. So let's pray, and we will jump in. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the power of it. Thank you that you are the creator of all things. Without Jesus Christ, nothing has been made that is made. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. The one whom the disciples handled the ones that they, see, they had seen, and the one who has risen from the dead. We glorify Jesus Christ today. And we ask, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see you, a glorious God, a Savior, one who delights in us and who has made us in the image of God with a purpose to serve you, to know you, and to make you known. So we ask you be glorified in this time and that we would just be quickened by your Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going through Isaiah 45, we're in verse 5, and the background of this is even before the captivity in Babylon, even before the Babylonians had taken Jerusalem, God was talking about their salvation and deliverance through Cyrus, king of the Persians. And before birth, God had ordained Cyrus, he called him to this purpose. He said, this is a reason why you've been made, and the passage that we're reading, it's God continuing to address Cyrus, and this is 150 years before Cyrus even was on the world scene. And so before there was even the problem, God had a solution and a person specifically that he had chosen to be in that role. It was God who knew Cyrus before he was formed in the womb. It was God who called him to deliver his people from captivity. And so How cool that before we realize there's a problem, God's already devised and made a way of salvation. And he's done that for us through Jesus Christ. 
so verse 5, we begin, I am the Lord, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Rain down, you heavens, from above, and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation, and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. God would gird Cyrus with strength. He would accomplish God's will. And God's foreknowledge of his people, the rise and fall of nations, his knowledge of Cyrus, it showed that he is infinitely powerful, wise, and that his word would come to pass. He knew what, what nations would rise and when they would rise and when they would fall. He knew when his people would be delivered and how and with who. So he, he knows all these things, and that knowledge is proof of his power. And that evidence has been supplied, as the scripture says, that all might glory in God from east to west, that everyone would know. And we can read his word today and know that this has come to pass. So God's the one who formed light. He created darkness. He made peace. He creates calamity. All he does is righteous. Now, the culture that he was speaking this into, uh, the pre-Islamic religion of Zoroastrianism, it's hard for me to say, it was gaining ground, and the idea behind this religion was that there was one god named Ahura Mazda. He gave birth to two twin sons. One was good, and the other was bad. It was a yin and yang sort of thing. You had uh, Spenta Mainyu. That was the bountiful and good spirit. And Angra Mainyu was the evil one. And so they really pitted their, their, I guess, powers against one another, and you have this good and bad, and there's this duality going on. But God stood in opposition to this deception. He says, I am God alone. There's not a divine emanation here and a divine emanation there that are warring. I have no opponent. There's no one who is like me. I am the one who does all things. I create the light and the darkness. I make peace and calamity. I do it all. I am in control. I am God. And he goes through this whole, as we've been reading, chapter after chapter. He's saying, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Does God even have a true opponent? No. There's no one like God. It's not like there's God, and then Satan's like God, and they're just fighting, and we're not sure who's going to win. Satan's a created being of God. There's no one who can even really oppose him if they were to square off. He is God. There is no other. Now, for unbelievers, even for Christians at times, there's this seeming dichotomy of how can an all-powerful God who allows suffering and evil in the world, how can he also bring good? And so this is uh, kind of a, a red herring that people will throw out there as an argument against God. Well, God, we know through the Scripture, he's all-powerful. He knows all things. We only know good because of God. And in his love and wisdom, he created man with a rational mind. He gave us the ability to reason and to think and to make decisions. After Adam fell, after he sinned in the garden, sin came into the world, which resulted in death. Increased pain and suffering, sickness entered into the world. And because God is a loving redeemer, 
He actually leveraged the painful consequences of sin as evidence, physical evidence, of man's hopeless condition. So you know in your body that you have a need for salvation because of sickness, because of pain. And God gave everyone a conscience. He supplied his law and he sent his prophets among his people. And he gave us his law to show that we are incapable of purifying ourselves. We can't do anything without him. And then ultimately sent Jesus Christ to bear the burden of sin, to die on the cross, to rise again from the dead, proving he has the victory and the power over sin and death so that everyone can be saved. So we see that God is all loving. He is all good, that he has made a way for sinners to be saved. And someday he is going to create a world that's completely free of all sickness, sin, pain, sorrow, where only righteousness dwells. So if you have complaints about this world, well, a new heavens and a new earth is coming that's going to be glorious because God will be there and there will be no sin and nothing to hinder our praise of him. So he says, let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open. Let them bring forth salvation. Let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. Without righteousness, there can be no salvation. We need righteousness, and we can't get it from the law. We can't get it from our efforts. It's Jesus who supplies that by his grace. He's like that grain of wheat that died, and in dying and being buried, he has raised up much fruit, eternal fruit unto God. Verse 9, Woe to him who strives with his maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what are you begetting? Or to the woman, what have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and his maker, ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness And I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. At the end there, he shall build my city. He's talking again of Cyrus. The prophet pronounces woe on all those that oppose God. And they imagine that they could sit God down as a peer and say, you have some explaining to do. Because I have a problem with you. I have a problem with what you've allowed and what you've done. He says it's like if you stand in judgment of God, it's like a pot. It's like a shard of pottery asking the the potter, what are you making? What are you doing? I mean, the pot would not exist unless it was formed by the hands of the potter. So how could the pottery say he has no hands when the fingerprints are, are right in it and yet... That is the folly that we find sometimes in our own hearts and in this world. So should we as a creation of God with a capacity of thought use our brains to criticize, to condemn God as if he didn't think anything through? We have a brain, it's because God, he also thinks. He knows everything. Our thinking is limited. His is infinite. The one who created our eyes, can't he see? And can't he see everything? He's not limited like we are, like a wall. It blocks my sight from what's happening on the other side. But God can see all. He is unlimited. What power or right does a pot have 
to determine its intended use. Can it change that? Can it decide for itself how it should be used, how it should have been made? No, God called Cyrus to something. He's called you as well. God has a right to do as he pleases. And when we understand every good gift in this life comes from a righteous God, his plans are always for good. And that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We can even accept difficult circumstances. When you want to ask, why have you made me thus? We're talking to the one who can make you new. Renew your mind. He's created us for that purpose of hallowing his name so that the circumstances of my life can bring honor to him. So the prophet, he also pronounces woe against God's people. They fought against him, against his word. This God had also formed the the heavens, the earth, the stars. In Psalm 147, 4 and 5, it says, He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Speaking for myself, I place value on things that directly impact me. I think we do too as as a nation or as a culture. It's like clean water. Well, I'm drinking water. And I know that my children, I want them to have clean water. And so you think about clean air, clean water, uh, sustainable forestry and husbandry and fishing and all that. We need to be wise with how we use this world God has made. Science is able to answer how, but unable to answer why. And when I think of the stars, for instance, they don't directly impact me. I don't know that anyone knows precisely why there are so many stars. You could tell me that a star exists. You could, you could explain, like, I think there's 100 to uh, 400 you know, billion stars in our galaxy alone. And I go, well, why? How do they impact the Earth? All those. I mean, there's so many. Why are there so many? You wouldn't be able to tell me. But this verse, it says, we can be impacted by the fact that God has made so many stars for his purposes and that he knows every one of them by name. He knows the exact place where they should be and they obey God. They continue to shine for his glory to this day. And so we who have a reasoning mind can be overwhelmed by the sense that there are more stars in our galaxy than human beings that have been born on this earth for all time. And he knows them all by name. And so if God knows just, he knows all the stars beyond our galaxy and the billions of galaxies, he knows everyone. Well, he certainly knows you and he formed you to shine for him. Like who is man to question God? God commanded the sun, moon, and earth and stars to keep their heavenly positions. They obey him, yet man, he's been far less reliable or faithful to God's intended purpose. Verse 14, Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come over in chains and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are God, who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. 
They shall go in confusion together who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. The salvation that comes through faith in God was not for the Jews alone. It was also for Gentiles who were willing to come to him, those who will repent and submit to God in faith. And we have this picture of Gentiles coming to the Jews, coming back to Jerusalem in chains, in bondage, and they acknowledge that God of Israel, he is really the only true God. It speaks of men of Egypt, Cush, the Sabaeans. It could be appropriate to add us to the list because we too have been in bondage, in slavery to sin, in slavery to death. But Jesus, uh, the Savior, he has freed us from those shackles. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, he speaks of Gentiles turning from idols to serve the living God. And it's ironic that God's saying this to his people who at that time were enslaved in idolatry. Remember, they were the ones who had made idols and, and uh, altars under every green tree. And they had been worshiping the queen of heaven and making, uh, you know, knitting things for her and, and burning incense, believing that, hey, when we stopped worshiping the queen of heaven, everything went wrong. And so we're going to keep worshiping. And God's saying, hey, people are going to come to you because they'll recognize that God is the true God, your God. And God would use even Gentiles, people like um, Rahab and Jericho, as a picture of the Gentiles who would come through faith. Remember, she's in Jericho. The spies come to spy out the land, and she says, everyone's heart is melting because your God is a powerful God. We've heard of all that he's done in Egypt, that mighty deliverance. At that time, it seemed that God had hidden himself from their sight, but he wasn't to blame for their unbelief. He gave ample evidence that he was the true God. He's never to blame for unbelief. God's given us a rational mind. He's also supplied the evidence that he is to be believed. Verse 17 says, But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever and ever. That is so amazing. No shame, no disgrace forever. Never have done anything wrong. God is glorious. When Jesus ministered in Israel, the people had eyes, but they didn't see. They had ears, but they did not hear him. He was largely rejected by the Jewish rulers, the scribes and the Pharisees. Ultimately, it led to his crucifixion. And like many of the parables Jesus told of the king or the master sending out invitations to his party, uh, the Jews largely rejected it. But he said, hey, we're going to go onto the highways and byways, get the blind and the lame. Anybody who wants to come to my party, bring them in. And that's the picture of the Gentiles being brought in who are willing to come. It's like uh, I invited a few people to come over today. Uh, for some hot wings, and, and I hadn't heard much. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm feeling a little bit like those, the, the master in the parable is saying, hey, if you want hot wings, come on over. I don't care who you are. I don't care anything. If you want hot food, be my guest and come by. So you're all invited. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Paul provided an illustration of the Jews being cut off, and the vine is Christ. The Jews have been cut off and the Gentiles have been grafted in. 
And he says, don't be wise in your own eyes, Gentiles, because if God spared not the natural branches, can't he cut you off as well? But he'll surely bring them back in. They will be grafted in. So they have stumbled in faith, but there's still hope for the Jews. They can come to Christ. Romans 11, 11, it says that the, the Gentiles who have come to Christ, God has made them to provoke the Jews to jealousy because of their love of God. And they realize that there is something real about this relationship with God that they don't have themselves. And they are the masters. They are the ones who, who have received the law. Romans eleven twenty five through 27. Listen to this. It says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinions, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. So a day is coming when the Jews will recognize Christ as their Messiah, and they will come to him as faith, in faith. Now the rejection of the Jews, it made way for the Gentiles. And think of this, God used a Jew to save Gentiles. Use Jesus Christ to save Gentiles. And it's the faith of the Gentiles that God will use to bring the Jews to Christ. It's amazing. God has this remarkable plan and how he uses us all in, in that. Isaiah 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who established it, who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. When you sign your autograph to a document, it's to prove your identity and the authenticity of that document. And God says, all creation, heaven, earth, everything that I have made, it proves that I exist. It proves who I am. He's the only God who speaks and can fulfill his word. He formed the earth to be inhabited. He revealed himself. He says, I didn't talk in a secret place. You didn't have to go deep underground and dig up something to, to learn that I exist. Behold, the heavens declare the glory of God. There's no language or speech in which they are not heard. He spoke in Jeremiah 29, 13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Talking to a backsliding people. You will seek me and find me if you seek me with your whole heart. God appeared to the children of Israel on Sinai, unapproachable, with smoke and fire and thunder and a trumpet exceedingly loud so that the people trembled and said, Moses, you talk to God. He's too dangerous for us. And yet he has revealed himself to us as Jesus Christ, God who became flesh, a suffering servant. The accounts of his life his works, his deeds, they've all been recorded for us to see. We can hear them. His ascension, many eyewitnesses. When we look at those and hopefully wonder, think, who is this man? 
Jesus Christ, who could do such things. And the people of his day, they wondered as well. Creation cannot exist without a creator, a designer, even a simple system does not exist without a designer. If there is a creator and a designer, then it follows there's a purpose in all that he has made. I've been reading this book. It's called Magnificent Obsession by David Robertson. It's a compilation of a series of letters that he wrote to a curious skeptic, and and I found it very useful. Because we live in a day that there's a lot of attack on Christ, Christianity, the truth of the word. Many people attack it or they don't even care to believe in the first place. And there's an infinite amount of reason men, man can supply for not uh, believing the truth. But in the end, there it is. The truth remains. And I love the, the phrase, uh, what is the chaff to the wheat? You know, all these statements that people make to put down Christians or put down the scriptures or even to castigate Christ, there's no transformation there. There's no power. There's no life there. But for those who have received the engrafted word into our souls, we have been transformed. We have been born again. We are new creations. We are different than we were. And so because of that, with Christ comes transformation, change, undeniable change. We're like in the videos that we watch where someone was heading towards death and their life had a complete reversal and now they're leading people to life, to Jesus Christ. Transform joy, peace, and contentment not based upon circumstances like Ivan was talking about. Where even when you're battling cancer, you can have the peace of God that surrounds you and the joy of the Lord radiating through you. The world will see that and wonder. It's fine when everything is going well. But when you're a Christian and going through a hard time, a suffering time, that season can be when you shine bright for the glory of God. Now, Robertson wrote this. He says, J.K. Chesterton wrote, My own case for Christianity is rational, but it is not simple. It is accumulation of varied facts, like the attitude of the ordinary agnostic, but the ordinary agnostic has got his facts all wrong. He is a non-believer for a multitude of reasons, but they are untrue reasons. He continues, The trouble with atheists who demand, show us the evidence is that they are not asking a question, but making an accusation. They are declaring there is no evidence, and therefore, that everything you can say will be automatically dismissed. Their starting point is that there can be no evidence. And Christians, we have the evidence dwelling within us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And we are to shine bright, be the salt of the world. Since God has given us mouths, we know that he speaks. He's given us ears. We, he can hear. He's able to communicate his truth through us to others. Verse 20. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you have, who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge who carry the wood of their carved image and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. 
God speaking primarily of Gentiles who would assemble in Jerusalem, who would escape the nations. We could also extend this to Jews who would return to those even to this day. Those who trust in images, they are nothing. They're without knowledge. They pray to an idol that cannot save. Now, have you noticed we as people, we can be, and I'll say supremely pleased when we call something and it actually comes to pass in anything. Like if you were, to, if you were able to predict uh, the outcome of the U.S. presidential election, which I hear people talking about, um, you, you might feel pretty smug or pretty glad. Like, see, I told you. But there's something in us that really likes that, to be able to say, I told you, or, or to be so smug that we won't even say, I told you. But that's what we're thinking. We're like, yep, mm-hmm. what did I say? What did I say? See, that's, that's a little bit ranging into God's territory a bit because he's the one who says things and they actually come to pass. One of the revered moments of baseball folklore is when Babe Ruth called his shot during the World Series in 1932. The Yankees were playing the Cubs, and with two strikes on him, Babe Ruth, and it's, it's one of the, it's lore, it's, it's, there's, uh, I guess, discussion, what exactly was happening there, but with two strikes, he pointed to the flagpole, and the very next pitch, he hit it right to the flagpole, home run, and everyone's like, oh, he called this shot, you know, folklore. It's, it's pretty legendary, and if you're able to call your shot, you kind of move into that legendary status where there's a bit of awe and worship ascribed to it, because here's a guy who said he was going to do something, and he did it. And he couldn't have really known that he could have done it, but he called his shot and it came through. So you kind of go up a level. Now, our God, he has called all the shots, really. He, he has said what will happen. It has come to pass. There's not one thing failed of all his promises that he gave to Joshua. There's no word failed that he has spoken to us. There are, there are prophecies yet to be fulfilled but there is ample evidence to know that God knows what he's talking about and that he is true. He does not lie. He does not deceive. He has never said the wrong thing. There's no other God besides God, the God of Israel, a just God, a Savior. Verse 22, he continues, Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So he says, Look to me and be saved. He knows our need. He knows we need salvation. And he says, look to me and be saved. He does not ask for an impossible thing. He's given us eyes to see. He says, if you seek me with your whole heart, you'll find me. Look to me. I'm the Savior. There's no one else. In Numbers 21, we're told of how the children of Israel, they were discouraged, it says, because of the difficulty in the way. Notice it said in our passage that they were incensed, the people in Isaiah. Well, they were pretty incensed against God, against Moses, and they were even angry about the food God had given them in manna. It said, our soul loathes this bread. We hate this way. We hate you. 
We hate that you brought us out here. And it says that God chastened them with venomous serpents. Many people were bitten and died. In Numbers 21, 7 through 9, it says, Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. We have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he might he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. The people, recognizing their error of, uh, and their anger against God, criticizing God and Moses, they came to him in repentance. And what did they ask for? They said, take away the serpents from us. Now, instead of what the people asked for, God did more than what the people could have even hoped for. They wanted God to remove the serpents. It does not say that he removed them. But what he did is he made a way for those who had already been bitten to be healed and to be saved. They had written off those people. They were like, get the snakes away. And God's like, no, I care about the people who have been bitten. I want to make a way, though they've been punished for their sin, to be healed and restored. That is the God who loves you. That is the God who has saved me. He provided a way of salvation that people did not even dream possible. It was beyond what they would even think to ask. And he says, if you just look to that bronze serpent, you'll be healed. They didn't have to do anything but look. God says, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And this brings us to what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He asked how a man could enter the kingdom of God. How can that happen? How can we be saved? In John three fourteen through 16, Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we must be born again. That's done through repentance and faith in Christ. And he says, even as Moses lifted up that serpent, people had to look to that serpent. So look to me and be saved. From the beginning of time, I have never heard of a king who willingly chose to die to save his people. And yet God chose to die to send his own son, Emmanuel, God with us, to die for his mortal enemies, to die for those who hated him and who cursed him and who pierced him, those who have offended him in his holiness. He died for his enemies so that they could be saved, so that we could be saved, us sinners. From the ends of the earth, there was no hope for us and ourselves, but Jesus has made a way so we could be washed from our sins to be made righteous. And that's the beauty and wonder of the gospel, the exchange that takes place. When we repent, we look to Jesus Christ, and he washes us clean. To be adopted into the eternal family of God. Could you please turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2, verse 5? And as we read this, consider how it lines up with the Isaiah passage that we have just read. 
the passage that says, Look to me and be saved. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall, re- shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. So Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." Strong evidence that Jesus is Lord. He is God. At the name of God, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord. And the resurrection of Christ, it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that he not only is the Messiah, but he has the power to save all who come to him in faith. It says in Isaiah, In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Jesus is Lord, and it's in Him we glory. Because of His sacrifice, we've been acquitted of all of our sin. It's, when God looks upon us, it's as if we have not sinned. We have been set apart for His use, and we are purified, made righteous. We are going to have a time of communion today, being the first Sunday of the month. And if I could have you look to Galatians 2, verse 20, I'd like to read this passage. God has supplied not only freedom and deliverance from the penalty of sin, but also the power of sin. Because we as Christians, though we have been washed clean from sin, we still have to deal with this sinful flesh, the tendencies that we have, the habits. And God wants us to to have, he has given us the victory, but he wants us to walk in victory as well over each one. And this is how Paul described his sanctification in Galatians 2.20. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Just focusing on that last bit there, that Jesus, he has loved us. He has given himself for us. And in that book, Magnificent Obsession, he spoke, the author, of emphasizing different parts of that verse. And it was really an interesting exercise to think Jesus did this for me. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. He's the righteous uh, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God Himself who purchased us with His own blood. And that He loved and gave. He loved us and He's given us. He's given Himself for us. He's given us the kingdom. He's given us His presence. He has... 
loved us with an everlasting love as he formed us before the foundations of the world. He knew us and he loved you. And then that last part, that he gave himself for me and who I am in light, I guess in his light, just nothing, not worthy of such sacrifice, but that God would love you and give himself for you so you could be saved, so that you could be together forever. It's so humbling to know that Jesus would die for me. I who deserve death, I have been set free. I am Barabbas in a sense. Barabbas is that that murderer, the one who caused an insurrection in the city, and it was like, you choose. You want Barabbas or Jesus? They said, give us Barabbas. He deserved to die. He was set free. I wonder how he lived his life. And in light of what Jesus has done for us, how are we living for him? And God will empower you through his spirit to live in the way that fully pleases him. So let's remember him today. Let's glory in him. Let's consider who God is, that there's no other God like him, and that he has loved you in such a way that he would sacrifice himself. So if I could have the worship team come up. Communion is available to all those who are born again as a picture of what has happened on the inside. Uh, We receive of the juice representing the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross and the bread, which is his body broken for us. We're told to remember and to proclaim the death of Christ till he comes. We await him with anticipation. And so if you are born again, you are welcome to partake. And while the song's being played, please come up and take the elements and I'll just offer a prayer over them so we can partake together. Lord, we thank you that you are God and there is no other. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. Thank you that we can look to you from the ends of the earth and be saved. And Lord, I I pray that if there are some here who are really going through a hard time and don't know where to turn and don't know where to look, that they would look to you. And Lord, if there are are some who are in a season of rejoicing and, and everything seems right in the world, Lord, I pray that they too would look to you. Cause us, Lord, to walk in repentance, in humility, to offer ourselves as the living sacrifices, which is our reasonable service unto you. Thank you for your obedience, Jesus, in going to the cross. Thank you for the power of the resurrection. And we ask, Lord, that you would examine our hearts. You would search us and show us.